0: Hello and welcome back to The Prospect Interview, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Tom Clark, a contributing editor now at Prospect magazine, and today I'm joined by my fellow contributing editor, Andrew Adonis, to talk about his contention that leadership is all that matters in modern elections. Maybe even in life. Andrew has brought together a new collection of writing making exactly this argument, um, which is largely made up of profiles, uh, many of them which were in Prospect magazine, of leaders from Narendra Modi through to Boris Johnson and back to great figures of history like Abraham Lincoln. So it's arranging load of evidence that's brought in in support of what we might call um, a great man or maybe that should be a great person theory of history as applied to modern politics. But Andrew, um, rather than have me miscaricature it... Uh, why don't I let you set out your thesis um, for yourself?
1: Well, Tom, it's great to be with you. And a huge thanks to Prospect because many of these chapters of my book started off as Prospect essays. And the great thing about Prospect is it stands back a bit from the hurly burly of day to day and tries to work out what's really happening. And this all started with an essay I wrote for you when you were editor five years ago on the big argument that what matters over and above all else in politics is the leader the man or woman who's at the top of the uh, party that fights um, elections and is able to to win through. And uh, I qualify this a bit, of course, it's not all leaders. It tends to be the top two candidates and parties because they're the ones who the whole structure of elections is focused on a head-to-head between those two. It's quite difficult for somebody coming from third or fourth position to come through. But when you've got, as you do in most democracies, essentially a choice between leaders who are almost invariably the leaders of the two major parties sometimes you know a bit like the greens in germany another party can come in at short notice but it's usually those two the one who is the most effective leader judged by a combination of charisma wisdom good policies projection relationship with the spirit of the times they're the person who wins and you just need to look at the leaders And you can generally, in advance, you don't need hindsight, we're not talking about captain hindsight, you can normally make a pretty good judgment as to who's going to win. Sometimes it's very close, because the two leaders are very closely aligned, and it comes down on points to other factors. But nonetheless, that does generally hold true. And if you look at recent elections in Britain, almost invariably, the leader who is most popular with the voters, the one who they rate most highly as leader and potential Prime Minister, is the one who goes on to win the election. Now, um, that's not to say other things don't matter. Party organisations matter. Policies matter. Ideology, the whole system of ideas matters. But they go hand in hand with the leader. Indeed, the leader is usually the expression of those policies and ideology. And good leaders, one of the things that they do is to get uh, really motivated organisations working with them. So my argument, I think, holds pretty um, uh, pretty well if you look at elections in major democracies since the second world war which is what i've done it's not invariable you can always point to the exception and the unusual situations where you have a third party that comes through we've had a, one of those quite recently actually in germany where there were essentially three parties in contention and olaf schultz who is uh, my second-to-last study in this book, a very, very interesting leader. Olaf Scholz came through as leader of the 3rd place party at the beginning of this German election campaign, the SPD. But even there, I think, the fact that he came from an established party of government and had a long history himself as being a government leader, both at the national level, he was finance minister, but also as mayor of Hamburg, was very significant in his capacity to break through. There you are. That's it in summary. But uh, you need to read the book to get the full detail.
0: <laughs> so um i mean i remember when we were editing this we knew we were going to get um or that you were going to get flack from kind of political scientists saying whoa hang on a minute you know like for a start we've got loads of evidence that other things like i don't know the economy uh matters or that you know particular policies matter an awful lot and more than that though that they, they said you know they, they charged you with uh what you're calling captain hindsight i mean if we pick a recent and salient and controversial um, example. Um, You've got um, the case of Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump. Now, you thought on your leadership points, I think that Trump would edge it. But like, in what sense was Trump really the better leader? Obviously, he's not the nicer person. But like, Is he really the better leader than
1: Hillary Clinton? Well, two two points to make on that. Firstly, of course, leadership changes over time, and it's crucially defined by who you're up against as well. I think most independent observers thought that in 2016 there were big problems with Hillary Clinton as the Democrat candidate. Uh, She was very unwell in the campaign. She didn't project at all well. Uh, She was uh, obviously um, uh, bullied by... Trump in, in, in the debates that had difficulty articulating. I said in my assessment, I thought they were about even Stevens. And indeed, the result was about as close as you could possibly get. Hillary slightly edged it in the popular vote, but Trump came through in the uh, Electoral College. By 2020, I was saying confidently before the election that I thought that uh, Biden would win because he was a, a much more effective projector than Hillary Clinton had been. He had a, he had a party much more strongly behind him than Hillary had done, who only narrowly got the nomination. And, of course, Trump was weaker in 2020 than 2016 because he'd been really seriously tarnished by his mishandling of COVID-19, and that proved to be correct. But again, on the issue of hindsight, when I published that big article with you on It's the Leader Stupid in 2017, do you remember? Because we did have a lot of pushback. So you said, Andrew, you've got to chance your arm here and make a few predictions then in the... Article And I did. I made two, you'll remember, because we discussed them. The first was that even though Jeremy Corbyn had done very well in the 2017 election, my prediction, it was a firm prediction, it's there in black and white, was that he would lose any subsequent election unless somebody really terrible like Jacob Rees-Mogg became the Tory leader. But anybody who was clearly an improvement on Theresa May... In terms of their electoral appeal and their political ability would beat Jeremy Corbyn, because he had just lost to Theresa May. And though a lot of my friends on the Labour left thought he'd done very well, the fact was, he got a lower percentage of the vote, his personal ratings were lower, and he got fewer seats. And that is precisely what happened. Remember we were followed by the 2019 election which was a Boris Johnson landslide and i made a similar prediction in respect of uh, Jacinda Ardern in new zealand and again that wasn't uncomplicated because she had just become leader and was coming from way way behind and uh, she didn't actually ace it first time it was it was because she was favored and was the most popular candidate amongst all of the political parties that she managed to get in into a coalition as Prime Minister. But then, once she was established, she aced it in the New Zealand election last year. So I think uh, it's fair to say that uh, Captain Hindsight has had to take a back seat, in my theory. You just need to have a good sense of politics. And frankly, the same kind of judgment about whether leaders are good or bad that the electorate has to make every time they go out to vote. I mean, there is a bit of a wrinkle, though, isn't there, with... um... Electoral
0: systems because, like, you know, uh, like Trump, for example, got less votes than Hillary. There was another case where I think you'd got the points, the only one where you got the points going the other way. Al Gore got more votes than uh, George W. Bush. And then in Britain, historically in 1974, we had elections where it was the wrong way around in 1951.
1: So um, it all gets a bit dicey there. Yeah, but what's interesting about those is that all of those are cases, interestingly, where the two leaders are very finely matched. So it's true that when you've got very finely matched leaders, the rules of the game really do matter because they can make the difference when you're, you're basically winning or losing the election on points they do make the difference between who wins and who loses. So Attlee against Churchill in 1951 is very, very finely judged. You know, Attlee is the guy who's led uh, one of the greatest reforming governments in modern times, and uh, the Labour Party is strong and united behind him. You know, it's set up a National Health Service and all that. Churchill's also the great war leader who stands for setting the economy free, which also has a, a big appeal to. They're very finely judged. Wilson and Heath in 1974, very finely judged. And as we were just saying, the same was true both of um, of, of Trump against Hillary Clinton in 2016 and also Al Gore against the younger Bush, George uh, uh, W. Bush, in 2000. So when it comes to very close elections where the leaders are, are very Closely matched, then the rules do matter. But you know, I don't think it would have mattered what the rules of the game were when it was Tony Blair against John Major in 1997 or Obama against McCain in 2008, where you've got, as you do in most elections, a very clearly superior leader in terms of their combination of charisma. Relationship with the uh, with the times and the spirit of the times, uh, political uh, nous and executive competence when, when, when there's somebody who's clearly the leader in that sense. And that, of course, includes management of the economy as well, which is one of the crucial things that people look to a leader on. So when people say it's the economy, it's not the leader. These, in practice, tend to be the same thing. People look to the most effective leader as the best guardian of their interests and keeping their, you know, taxes under control and the economy growing in a time of crisis. So I think it holds up pretty well.
0: Um, now you've got people in there you don't like. You know, certainly Farage and Thatcher, and to some extent maybe von der Leyen. But you don't really have the real villains. I mean, you've got Modi. He's getting quite close. But do you think when you need to think about leadership, because it's not necessarily a a thing that is used for good, is it? Should you have had a Hitler or a Pol Pot?
1: Well, I only deal with leaders who have been elected. Uh, Now, actually, I suppose that that does include Hitler, curiously, because he was elected first time around. But I'm not a great specialist on dictators. So there's no chapter in there on on Chinese or or Russian dictators, because uh, in dictatorships, of course, it's not necessarily the best leader who becomes uh, dominant and and stays in post, often uh, internal machinations and uh, the army and and people who are just best at, at at seizing power in bureaucratic systems can come through. Uh, so I think different rules apply. There is of course a grey area where some dictators did first get elected. And and I mean let's be clear, Hitler was a, a stunningly good. Um, uh, a, a winner of electoral votes in the hurly-burly of Germany in the 1920s and 30s. He did it by appealing to all of the worst instincts of the German people and massive xenophobia and anti-Semitism and so on. But uh, he did know how to, uh, to, to pile up votes in, in large order. But for the most part, my book is concerned about leaders who win power in elections through democracies. That's not to say the elections are completely pure. Indian elections are obviously there's a a lot going on there besides uh, the free and fair expression of political opinions and the same i'm afraid is also true in, in the united states with voter suppression but i think it holds pretty true for democratic elections and by the way there is no completely pure uh, democratic system is there uh, the the all systems to some extent act as prisms through which Leadership is projected, and uh, the rules of the game are always fought over. You know, we've got legislation going through Parliament in Britain at the moment that would restrict people's right to vote by having to show voter ID and so on. So you have to accept that as as a slight distortion. But nonetheless, the question is whether, in reasonably bona fide democracies, does the best leader win? And coming to, for example, to, to Narendra Modi, who's an extraordinarily interesting figure. He has won more votes than anybody in the history of democracy in a reasonably free. Set of elections, over a billion people have voted for Modi over his four elections two nationwide elections in India and two where he became first minister of Gujarat. And he is a, a superb mobiliser of electoral opinion, whatever you think of his politics.
0: But, but they, I mean, there you're you are saying it in a way is that, um, uh, you know, Hitler was a good marshaller of votes as well as a stoker of the worst emotions in people. Modi, I'm not comparing him to Hitler because he's not the same thing, but he's clearly like plays on sectarianism in a in a dangerous uh, way. Uh, and that comes across in, in your piece. Um, but then like, you know, even closer to home with politicians that we might like, and you ha- highlight um, Francois Mitterrand um, uh, and this idea of his indifference, you know, like in the end, he's very good at being a politician because he can be happily working with Vichy or like the face of the resistance or the resistance to de Gaulle's kind of strong presidential um, uh, constitution, the ally of the communists, and then later the, the embodiment of the strong presidential republic himself. I mean, what he's very good at is being a Chameleon, is that fair? Absolutely fair.
1: I mean, an extraordinary chameleon, Mitterrand, a guy who goes from Marshall Payton at the beginning of his career to Helmut Kohl at the end. I mean, you couldn't sort of make it up in terms of his ability to constantly reinvent himself in a career lasting over half a century. The key point is that I'm talking about good leaders, I'm not talking about good people. Mm. Uh, it's not the case, I'm afraid, that the best person becomes the winner of elections. Uh, If only that were true, that manifestly isn't the case. But the best leader, and in a democracy, the best leader requires a, a range of skills, some of which are straightforwardly populist, they've got to be able to project themselves very effectively and win lots of votes. But also judgment of how to play issues, an understanding of the relationship between policy and the crisis of the times, an understanding of your nation and how it is, and Modi is brilliant at this, but uh, so so have been other leaders over time, understanding how you project a a vision of your country, you know, de Gaulle did it so brilliantly in post-war France, a vision of your country which really chimes uh, with the voters at large. All of these things are important. And if you are, as it were, a liberal Democrat like me, I mean, liberal with a small L, somebody who believes in, in liberalism and in uh, a kind of um, a problem-solving centrism, which is where I come from, there is a big message from this. The big message is that good ideas, good policies, and being a decent guy alone are not going to do it. You have got to have the political skills, you've got to be able to play play the political game, and you have got to be able to project yourself as a very effective leader. The ideal, you know, I come back to somebody I work for, who I hugely admire, uh, Tony Blair, somebody who did have most of those qualities of, of liberalism but was also a superlatively good leader. I'd I, I put Obama in the same camp. I would put Angela Merkel in the same camp. And Merkel is very interesting. Merkel won uh, four elections in a row Four, and she probably would have won a fifth if she'd stood this year. She is not your archetypal charismatic leader, but she is brilliant at judging the spirit of the times and the spirit of the German people, and that's what's given her such a consistent edge in modern German politics.
0: I mean, so, so, where I was kind of going at with the Mitterrand thought. Is Because where this gets practical is exactly what you're now talking about, which is if you're in a political party, if you're thinking about who's our next leader, um, like, you know, you read maybe the start of your book and you think, well, all that's going to matter for winning is the leader. So let's go for the person who's most popular. But if a corollary of being a popular and effective leader is being like me to run someone who can you know you don't like my principles I have others who can change it and you're in a political party because you believe in something then it's quite a high risk thing to do obviously it's a high risk thing to do to go for an unpopular Um, leader as well because you're probably going to lose but if you go for a popular leader who's popular because they're kind of shameless you don't actually know what they're going to do in government if you get them in there.
1: Well it's certainly a dilemma for people who are choosing leaders of course and that goes to the heart of of the human condition in many ways doesn't it which is that people have very uh, many different elements to them and you're having to constantly make judgments in the round about um, uh, what you like and don't like and that's as true of your approach to other people and, and potential leaders as it is, as you know, what you have for dinner in the evening. So it does expose the dilemma quite clearly. Um, I do like to think, though, as a profound Democrat, that part of the act of choosing the leader and requiring them to win elections in a democratic uh, system, unlike dictatorships and authoritarian regimes, is that there is then at least a bias to them doing what they said they would do when they got elected. So if you take Mitterrand, who is an extraordinary chameleon, I actually think he was a pretty good president of France as as a social democrat. He was a president elected twice on a broad social democratic agenda. He managed to change the balance of that agenda in a classic Mitterrand way, dramatically between his two terms. His first term he was elected in a coalition with the communists, because that's where he sensed that the centre of was in France in the 19 late 1970s and early 80s, by the second election he'd moved radically to the centre and was running essentially as a kind of liberal. But the point about it is that though that demonstrates in many ways his extraordinary aptitude as a politician and, and as a leader, he did broadly deliver on what he said he would do in both of his terms, because he understood that part of getting re-elected or, um, or being able to, to carry the the, the the modern french democratic political world did depend upon him doing so so i think this interplay between leadership qualities and democracy is hugely important and one of the Uh, lessons I draw from my own writing and these essays is not to say, oh, just stand back and democracy doesn't matter, the the best leader is going to come through. On the contrary, this whole democratic process of choosing leaders, them having to win elections, them being held to account, them having to stand again for elections, crucially fashions the type of leaders that you get in a democracy and how those leaders then go on to behave. So the democratic lessons in this, I think, are very profound and very positive.
0: Um okay um uh, as a writer there's um a particular challenge maybe um with some of these pieces in that they're about people you know um uh now in some of these cases that's probably okay so with Boris Johnson you know him a bit but you've kind of gone down such a separate path I imagine it's not difficult to um uh, attack him he knows you're going to attack him Roy Jenkins um, you knew very well but is no longer with us so he's not looking over your shoulder um, uh, but then Michael Heseltine for example I know you were talking to only this week um, uh, and he's in there and uh, then also Tony Blair of course you've already mentioned I mean how does that work are you able to keep a bit of distance from what they'll think when they read it when you're writing and and what discipline do you need uh, to do that?
1: Well, Tom, you've exposed the classic problem of the biographer, which is that in order to write well about somebody, it it, it helps that you have some real empathy uh, with them. uh, And the best way of gaining empathy is actually to know them. But if you get too close to them, you lose subjectivity. And and striking that balance is always difficult. I hope readers will think I've I've struck the balance fairly. I'm quite overt and open about the fact where I have close relationships with... um, with the person in question, there are three of those. There are Michael Heseltine, um, there's uh, Tony Blair, and as you say, there's Roy Jenkins. So I'm open about it. I don't think I'm uncritical in any in in respect of any of the three. Indeed, when I did the launch at uh, Prospect Towers uh, uh, this week of the uh, of the book with Michael Heseltine, um, I asked him about his famous unclubbability, uh, his I- inability to. Uh, relate very closely to uh, fellow politicians which uh, you could argue is a leadership failing and he accepted maybe the reason why he never became prime minister. Uh, Roy Jenkins uh, famously uh, resigned both as the deputy leader of the Labour Party and then also from the Labour Party entirely and set up a new party and I d- d- discuss at some length whether that was a big mistake and whether he should have stuck with Labour and in the que- case of Tony Blair many of, of, uh, of my readers are surprised at uh, at how um, uh, independently minded I am in my essay on him in respect of two key things that he did and didn't do, the one he did being the Iraq war and the thing he didn't do which was joining the euro. And I don't want to, uh, as it were, uh, spoil my own scoop but I give uh, detail in there of uh, discussions I had with him about the single currency and how close run it was. That he didn't do the single currency, but did do Iraq, and I discuss quite openly whether he got that the wrong way around.
0: Have you have you put that to him? Have you said you know could you have spent all that political capital in your phrase I think on, uh, on 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 the euro rather than um, hugging W? I
1: I have put it to him, and let me just say he doesn't agree. <laughs>
0: okay, I suppose he he kind of can't at this point. <laughs> Um, uh, now another, like there's quite a lot of history in here, isn't there? Like, like deep history. I mentioned Abraham Lincoln, um, a very curious piece, a piece like none other I've seen before was about, um, called Gladstone versus Marx. Um, uh, I thought it was a very interesting piece. It's much more really, uh, about Marx being against Gladstone rather than the other way around, because Gladstone doesn't really know who Marx is, does he?
1: The reason I did it is that Gladstone, I think, is one of the greatest leaders of this country. He's an extraordinarily powerful Uh, liberal reformer in the 19th century. Uh, indeed not only does uh, a large part of what we now think of as modern democracy owe owe its uh, vitality to him successive big expansions of the vote then only to men but it was on a course which was clearly going to lead to democracy largely done uh, by uh, Gladstone but also the things he wasn't successful in doing but tried to do like what was called at the time home rule for Ireland which was essentially an independent and democratic Ireland which he tried to do but failed to do because the imperial forces were too strongly against him at the end of the 19th century. And the thing about Gladstone is this liberal reformist um, persona that he had, which was very much based on Britain as a representative uh, system of government because he had to win elections to get there, and he had to win elections within a restricted franchise. I set against the Marxist critique put forward by Marx himself – which is that this is all a very bad idea and what you need is the di- what he calls, of course, the dictatorship of the proletariat. And this dialogue between the two of uh, Marx being constantly, in his journalism, critical of Gladstone, he's obsessed by Gladstone in his journalism and much of his writing because he sees Gladstone as the liberal reformer who isn't fundamentally going to change the class basis of society and what's needed is revolutionary politics. But what I, I think I... Uh, Show in the essay is that Gladstone wins that argument. He does show that it's possible to modernise uh, a what had been a very conservative system of government with a very restricted franchise, essentially run by an aristocracy, and to and to bring it by stages into a modern democracy without having to go through the class-based bloody revolution of the kind that Marx wanted and actually succeeded in bringing about, of course, with communism a generation later, starting in Russia. So I think that essay is an unusual one because it's about one person who's an existing political leader and another who is essentially a writer but does see himself as a political leader. And indeed, in the 1848 revolutions, Marx had been a, a real... Uh, agitator for uh, for change uh, on on the lines of his communist manifesto in 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 germany and i think the dialogue between the two of them goes to the heart of modern western liberal leadership which is the argument i'm trying to make in that chapter
0: yeah and it, i mean it's got some lovely detail in it marx is sort of in his sick bed and the one thing he'll get up will get him out of bed is to rant and rave about a report of Gladstone's latest Yeah, and he hated
1: the idea of Gladstone as a parliamentarian. See, part of what makes a good leader is the ability to persuade and the ability to carry public opinion, including elite opinion, and parliaments are, by definition, composed of elites. Marx was hugely contemptuous of that. He thought what mattered was the great movement of classes and that they would lead to class war and that would change... ...leadership and power, whereas Gladstone's model, which is of a constant interaction between the educated part of the community, those who are in Parliament and the public at large, that being the model of leadership, which of course is one that I strongly support, I think it's what makes for for, for civilised and good government, that is what the battle between them is, largely consists of, and in that debate... Uh, not only does Gladstone win in terms of the politics of Britain in the 19th century, but I think he also wins in terms of the whole development of liberal democratic capitalism across the West over the last century.
0: Okay, let's just bring things a little bit up to date, because as you've already said, you know, one of the problems with commenting on leadership is leadership inevitably kind of ebbs and flows. um, And, um, you know, the two portraits... Uh, you've got in uh, from the last year um, about British and American politics, Joe Biden and Boris Johnson, of course. Um, I mean, both of them has had a bit of a knock to their reputation since um, you wrote those pieces. So first of all, let's talk about Biden, who um, you know got off to a very good start and has got his infrastructure bill through. And for a f- few months at the beginning, the kind of comparison with of this kind of what would look like a rather creaky 78-year-old guy suddenly looking like the new FDR looked more plausible. Now it's getting harder to sustain uh, as he runs into trouble. Do you think... There's something in him, though, a personal quality, that means he can bounce back from where he seems to be just now.
1: He's certainly got the innate qualities. Uh, Joe Biden is an extraordinary political phenomenon. Though he's the oldest US president, he's also among those who started in serious politics youngest. He got elected to the Senate. As a senator from Delaware when he was 29, which is actually below the legal age at which you can take office. And he was only able to take office because his 30th birthday fell between the election and the inauguration of of the Senate in uh, whenever it was, 1973. So he's an extraordinary political survivor who's honed his political skills since his 20s. Uh, and indeed, Boris Johnson goes back a long way too. He first got seriously engaged in politics when he was in his 20s. He first tried to stand as a candidate when he was 29. He cut, he, he, he fights his first parliamentary election when I think he's 32 and then gets elected two or three years later. One of the, the themes I develop in the book, which I actually only came to appreciate by writing successive essays on people who've got the top of politics, is what I call the Club of 30. And the Club of 30 is the club which leaders are in who first got elected to uh, public office or got seriously engaged in elected politics by the age of 30. And that's a remarkably high proportion of politicians who hold office. It includes all, almost all of the people we've spoken about. Narendra Modi becomes a sort of full-time runner for the BJP, the Hindu Nationalist Party, when his has has barely left school indeed is doing it while he's at school tony blair first gets elected to the house of commons at the age of 30 lincoln earlier lbj and jfk both in their 20s and so it goes on and these skills i think are hugely important to your ability to survive and then to win and to win repeatedly in politics it doesn't mean that you're not going to have big problems in government and you're not going to get big knocks i mean you know thatcher blair LBJ, FDR, they all got big knocks. Uh, 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 um, Narendra Modi is going through big problems in India at the moment. The question is, do you have the political skills to be able to come back? And then, of course, it depends upon the leader you're up against in your next election. And I think that's still true, both of uh, of Biden and of Boris Johnson. And we're speaking today on the day when Boris Johnson has just comfortably won a by-election in a seat which people had said he might be losing to the Labour Party. He's not over by any means yet. So, so um, because precisely because of the kind of character thing, if you like,
0: you're relatively bullish on both of those people despite the, the kind of difficulties of the moment. Well, you'd be,
1: very, you'd be a very unwise person to bet against either of those unless you can see the leader who's going to fight the election against them who is clearly superior and uh, that's going to be the issue in both British and American politics. Is there going to be a leader who can come through who's clearly superior? There is, of course, another issue in respect of Biden, which is becoming a, a president at, at the age of 78 uh, uh, or whatever it was when he, he took office. I think it was 78. Uh, you know, that is unusually old. And are you actually even going to you know keep your cognitive skills and all that going for the next four years Is clearly an issue in respect to Biden?
0: Yeah, so 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 time gets the better of all of us in the end, but 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 for the moment you're still bullish. And uh, what about um Keir Starmer? You are a peer in the House of Lords. You take the Labour whip, so maybe you have to answer this in a slightly careful way. But um, you know he's had a a better spell just now. But in general, the mood of the last two years, most of the time, people have been saying, is 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 this what leadership looks like somehow? Haven't they?
1: Well, I think that is the big challenge for Keir. Uh, uh, He absolutely isn't in the Club of 30, which I I think is quite interesting. He uh, doesn't stand for Parliament until he's over the age of um, of 50, which is unusually late to go into politics. And then he becomes uh, leader of his party within... um, uh, five years, six years then, of going into the House of Commons. So he gets, becomes leader quite quickly, but going in very late. And I think the issue, if I can choose my words carefully, is whether he's able to develop those attributes of leadership which can win through against Boris. The good news, though, for him, is that though Boris was clearly the better leader vis-à-vis Jeremy Corbyn in 2019, so I had no difficulty predicting at the time that, that Johnson v Corbyn was going to be Johnson... Uh, he had higher negatives than almost any recent prime minister at the time of the election. He was just lucky that uh, that Jeremy Corbyn had even higher negatives. Jeremy Corbyn was by far the most unpopular leader of the opposition who had fought a general election since Michael Foote in against Thatcher in 1983. And we all know how that one ended. So he's not up against um, Keir Starmer isn't up against you know an LBJ or a JFK or a Tony Blair. He's up against a much much weaker and flawed leader who constantly shows how flawed he is. I mean his mismanagement of um, of uh, of the government over over recent weeks and you know the, the Owen Paterson affair and and trying to abolish the Standards Commissioner of the House of Commons, which then massively blew up in in his face. I mean he is a seriously flawed leader. There's a much lower threshold to get over than for many holders of the Office of Prime Minister. And uh, I think it's still very much there for Keir to play for. Okay, well, we've now heard a
0: little bit of uncertainty about the future of British politics from Andrew Adonis, after all that certainty about how much leadership matters. Andrew's book, It's the Leader Stupid, Changemakers in Modern Politics is available on Amazon. And big thanks to him for joining us this time. Our producer was Sarah Collins. Thank you all very much for tuning in. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please do leave us a rating and a review. Goodbye, stay safe. And whilst you're waiting for next week's episode, please do get down to the newsagent and look out for a copy of Alan Rusbridge's brand new look, Prospect Magazine. It's very different and you're in for a treat.